Hello, everyone. I would like to welcome you to this event hosted by the Department of Finance here at the LSE and the Financial Markets Group. I'm uh, Professor Ulf Axelsson in the Finance Department, and I'm also the Director of the Financial Markets Group. And um, I'm going to uh, give this to Craig Calhoun very soon to give a proper introduction. I just want to say that you know we in the Finance Department, and me in particular, are super excited about this Event. So I'm actually directing our finance and private equity program, and I see a lot, of, a lot of my students here. And if you're in that world, this is kind of like having Michael Jordan or Roger Federer or um, I don't know any cricketers that are any good. But uh, you know, having Steve Schwartzman, who founded Blackstone, which is on some metrics the most successful private equity firm initially, and then a big asset manager here. It's just a great uh, treat, and having him talk to some of our students who are going to join uh, this inaugural program is, is even better. So with that, I'm just going to ha- hand over to Craig to continue. So this is testimony to the decentralized, democratic character of the LSE that the director cannot come without an introduction from the finance department onto its turf. But let me echo Ulf in saying how exciting it is to have Steve Schwartzman with us at the LSE. And Steve Schwartzman has done more than found the Blackstone Group, but that is a pretty extraordinary accomplishment. So he and Pete Peterson left investment bank Lehman Brothers, not on the verge of collapse at the beginning of the financial crisis, but in 1985, and with a relatively modest investment, I believe the initial investment balance sheet was $400,000, founded the Blackstone Group. And in the process, not only created one of the largest private equity investors, but to some extent created the business of private equity investing. They really pioneered this as a large-scale business, and it is a very large-scale business in the world, and Blackstone remains the leader, and Steve Schwartzman remains Blackstone's leaders. So he has not only built an industry and built a major firm and been a key leader on Wall Street, but he has become one of the more important philanthropists in the world and has pioneered new ground here. He's been a major donor in a variety of areas, including, importantly, to his alma mater, Yale, um, where he gave $150 million to fund a new student commons. He's also given to a variety of other donations, and uh, that includes New York Public Library, a very important institution in New York. And he's created a remarkable program the Schwartzman Scholars Program. It's often described as Rhodes Scholarship-like, but it's a very distinctive program that recognizes the importance of China in the world today, the importance of an understanding of China to a range of countries throughout the world and to future leaders. We at LSE are privileged and proud that two of our graduating students, have been recent graduates, have been named Schwartzman Scholars. This is terrific for them. It's terrific for the LSE. Very few universities had any students named. Most, if they did, had one. And so this was a special achievement for the LSE. And we are very pleased to have with us uh, Sean Chandi, who received his BSc in management, and Christian Forby, who received his MSc in government. And the format for today is that they're going to interview Steve. 
and they're going to learn a bit more about their benefactor and, uh, and one of the greatest investment authorities in the world, and you are allowed to sit in on this interview and learn a bit more, too. Uh, but we will have this discussion for about an hour and then, or a little less, and then open this up to the floor and questions, and then there will be a reception. I'll remind you, the hashtag for Twitter users in the audience. But with no further ado, welcome to Steve Schwartzman, Shan Chandi, and Christian Forby. Thank you so much, Professor, and thank you, Mr. Schwartzman, for being here. We've all really been looking forward to this. So to get started with the questions, we thought we'd start at the very beginning, uh, career choice, um, because lots of people in this room, being at the LSE, are in the process of choosing a career path. And the problem is, if there is one, that at a place like LSE, people are so talented and almost not limited geographically, because we're from all over the world. Um, and that makes career choice a really serious business. So that's why it's interesting to hear from people like you who are successful in so many ways. Did you always want to do what you do? Did it just happen? Let's, we'd like to hear the story, basically. Jeez, I, I, I had no idea what I do even existed. And, uh, you know, I, I was raised like a, a normal middle-class person in America. I had no idea there were stocks or there were bonds or that finance even existed uh, when I went to college. And I pretty much left the same way I entered. And um, life is a really strange type of thing. Uh, there's an interception of, of luck. And, and, you know, the way I, I got into the business area that I did is I was working a reunion, uh, which was the 15th reunion. I thought the people were really old. I was 21. Apparently, they were 37, and they had something called children. Uh, and so, so there was a, a picnic uh, in Davenport College, which is the one I was in at Yale, and I was working. And there was this, like, lovely family. And uh, I didn't have any money, which is why I was working the reunion. And uh, for some reason, I looked at this family, and, and I they had two children, uh, mother and father, and I went out to a bookstore, and I bought uh, a copy of uh, Babar the Elephant, which my dad used to read to me before I went to sleep. And I just walked over, and I, I gave him the book. And... Uh, they, they were suitably stunned, uh, as I was, actually. What was I doing? I just felt that way. And, and uh, so, so we struck up a conversation, and, and, and uh, th this fellow, uh, Larry Noble, worked at uh, the Yale admissions office, and, and he had a lot of friends. And so he said, what are you doing after you graduate, which was like I already had. I said, I got no plans. He said, well, why don't I introduce you to some people? So he sent me down to meet somebody at Bankers Trust, and I had never had a suit. I had never been in an office building. So that was sort of shocking. And after I was talking to this uh, lovely gentleman, uh, Lou Lapham, uh, he said, do you want some lunch? 
And, you know, all students want lunch, particularly <laughs> if it's for free. So I figured we're going someplace, and he opens these doors. There's what's called a private dining room. I didn't know you could, like, eat in the sky. It was like an amazing thing. So he offers me a job, and then he says, I'd advise you not to take it. I found this somewhat confusing. I was desperate for a job. I said, well, why shouldn't I take it? He said, well, um, you're, you're too smart to work with our people. You'll be frustrated. You'll quit. We'll get a year out of you, and it's a bad deal. So I said, well, what should I do? He said, well, well go uh, and... Um, uh, he said, what you should do is work with a small group of very smart people doing anything. That was very specific. So I went back to the guy from the, from the picnic, and I told him, and he sent me to see another guy whose name happened to be Bill Donaldson. And, and Bill was old. He was 37, too. Uh, and he was the head of a company called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenneran. And uh, which was in the securities business, apparently. So I, I went. Uh, I was an hour early because I didn't want to blow my opportunity. And then, like all securities firms, I was kept waiting for another hour because they always make you wait because they're dealing with a crisis. They're not rude. They're just dealing with a crisis. And, and so uh, I was sitting there, and there were these just, you know, really attractive-looking people like in, walking through the lobby, men, women, whatever, and excited, fast-moving, well-dressed. So I met him, and he said, why do you want to work at DLJ? And I said, I have no idea what DLJ even does, but I want to be like these other people. So he looks at me, and he says, well, that's a good enough reason to be here. Uh, and, and so then he had me interview uh, with the other people at his firm. And after a day, I went back to him. It was a very small firm, one floor of an office building. And he said, well, what do you think? Uh, I, said, uh, I said, what I think is irrelevant. It's what they think about you. They think you're nuts for having me waste everybody's time. So he said, that was... That's interesting. So I left. He said, I'll give you a call. So he calls me a few days later, and he said, we, we'd like to hire you. I was between graduation from school and going into uh, the Army Reserves uh, during Vietnam. So I had an indeterminate period of time. And he said, I'd, I'd like to uh, offer you uh, $10,000 uh, a year. So I said, you know, that's really terrific, uh, Bill. Uh, I'm really flattered, and there's only one problem. He said, what's that? I said, I, I need 10-5. <laughs> he, he said, well, why, why do you need 10-5? I said, because there's somebody else from Yale who's getting 10, and I want to be the highest person. <laughs> Graduated from Yale in 1969. And he said, Steve, that's laudable, but I don't care. <laughs> It's, a, it's not relevant to me. I said, well, it's relevant to me. I'm not going to take the job. And he said, you're not going to take the job? He said, don't you realize you're qualified for nothing? I said, yes, I'm totally in touch with that. But 
I want to be the highest uh, paid graduate. And he said, listen, this is really crazy. He said, let me think about it. He called me the next day. He said, okay, 10-5. And that's how I got into finance. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> By the way, I, I you don't... don't have to do everything the way he did it. Right. <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily recommend that as an approach. <laughs> it was a different time in, his, in history. For the next question, I'd like to quote James Tomlinson Hill, who is the head of Blackstone Alternative Asset Management, the hedge fund solutions business. I quote him, Steve is a talented businessman who is excellent at matching talent with interesting investment opportunities. Now, Mr. Schwartzman, you've, you've made it a point of allowing talented people within Blackstone to develop business lines with a great deal of autonomy. You told James to head the hedge fund solutions business um, to, uh, and act entrepreneurially while being able to lean on the broader firm's resources where necessary. Now, the hedge fund solutions business in 1999 had $1.3 billion of assets under management and around $10 million of fee revenues. Now, today it has $69 billion of AUM and over $600 million in fee revenues. And a similar story exists with Jonathan Gray and the real estate team, which is now perhaps the largest, it is the largest in the world and perhaps the most successful. So how do you so successfully cultivate leadership talent within Blackstone, retain them, and give them enough room to develop? Well, each, each of our businesses is part of the firm. Uh, it's not really autonomous. It, we organize in a certain way so that people have an important level of autonomy, but extension of credit always has to be to a significant degree controlled, or, or else you could find yourself with a series of lease departments, and that's an opportunity to uh, uh, create a variety of bad outcomes. Uh, picking people is uh, really like the most fun, uh, because uh, people are what make a lot of things happen. and. You know, my, my experience uh, is, 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 is that you're looking for a certain kind of person. They're, they've got to be smart. Uh, they've got to be flexible. Uh, they've got to be endlessly uh, uh, curious. Uh, they, they've got to have enough humility uh, so that, you know, when things start going uh, against them, they can handle uh, criticism. They have to be uh, mentors of, uh, of other people. Uh, they have to like working in a horizontal uh, environment because finance, uh, you know, if, is, is a fast-moving uh, type of business. And, and you know, you, you have to have people who are working with you, not for you. And, and the only difference between people who are in the business two or three years and the people who are in it for a much longer period of time isn't that they're smarter, uh, they're just older. They have had more experiences. So you have to treat everyone the same. Uh, you, you have to cultivate uh, the thinking of younger people uh, and, 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 and force them to participate uh, at meetings. You have to run a completely transparent 
uh, operation so that everyone knows what the grown-ups know. It's, it's, it's not that unique that the grown-ups know it, right? It's, it's just decision-making. And how you do that and how you train people uh, uh, and, and making a culture where there's, uh, um, that's a meritocracy, uh, I've, I've, you know, when, when I started the business, I said there are only two reasons that anybody will be terminated. One is incompetence, and the second is internal politics. And uh, if you grew up at Lehman Brothers, you would understand that story. Uh, and, and so uh, we don't tolerate, uh, you know, sort of uh, that type of, of manipulative uh, uh, behavior. Uh, and... And so if everybody knows that it's just about you and it's about, you know, sort of learning and, and we try and structure the firm so that people don't have incentives for doing things, um, just the opposite of what you might think. Because in finance, if you hire, you know, sort of success-driven people and you give them incentives for doing things, the one thing you can be assured of, they will do something. Now, there are many times where that's fine, and there are many times when doing something is a terrible idea, which will get the firm and their investors into trouble. So, so we try and have compensation arrangements that don't have highs and lows. Uh, we, we, we'd rather just you know, sort of evaluate our people to make sure they, they have a gift, they have fire in the belly, uh, and they work their tails off. But paying them a lot more for doing things is... Is, is a potential danger. You pay them more over time if what they do, of course, is good, but not any one thing. It's a ridiculous way to deal with, uh, you know, high-torqued uh, uh, talent. But to create an environment that's a lifetime learning thing and, and you know, seeing the senior people at the firm every week the idea that you're running a large organization where you're remote is is no way to to build a culture and and ultimately in any really successful uh, uh, organization of any type and and particularly in the investment business the the way you have a good culture is being in people's faces and reinforcing what the culture is not because a compliance person tells you you should be reading something. I, I, I sort of look at this as, in, in the United States, we, we have something that was, you know, when I was growing up, they're middle-class values. You know, you, you do the right thing. You don't need your general counsel telling you what's permitted and what's not. You should know it. You know, you should know what's wrong, what's over the line, what's too clever, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you, if you have a culture of that type and you select the right type of people, and you have a, 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 a downside-protected culture. So I, I, I believe, and everybody's taught, that your, your, your first commandment is not to lose money. That also is a good second commandment, and it's even better third. Because if you're in any type of culture anywhere in the world where economies grow, um, even though it's more suppressed right now than over the last, you know, sort of 40 or 50 years. But if economies grow and you can pick good investments, and in our case, many of them are private investments where, where um, 
you improve the asset. You just don't buy it and see how it works out. That's, that's, not, that's not how you have super performance, which we've had. That uh, you, you, you really you know, have, to, have to be careful about what you do. And if you think there's a chance of loss, even though there's a good chance of gain, you don't go there. You just don't go there. And if you underwrite everything in a very thorough way to, to avoid that kind of loss, th- then you triumph in the end simply if you're good at managing businesses or other, other assets. And um, it, it's, it's, it's not that hard, but here's another tip for you as long as we're, we're like, in a great place. Uh, that that uh, what I found is that people who are bringing some type of investment or project to any organization don't like it when other people say it's a bad idea. For some reason, they get offended. And they think it's about them. And they think people don't like them. So what tends to happen in almost every organization is that when somebody brings an idea, most people don't comment on it or they'll say something, yeah, it seems good, or then they won't say anything. So what happens? You end up doing all these silly things that, that get everybody in trouble. So, so we realized just sort of right at the beginning when I made a mistake, I greenlighted something as the only source of wisdom in the whole firm. What a dummy I was, right? That I realized that the only way to organize yourself is that everybody around the table had one job, which was to, uh, in effect, uh, look at the risks in the deal and call them out. Uh, In English, that's called criticizing uh, the deal, but also doing it in a precise way of, of looking at all the risks, defining what those risks are, where they can go wrong. And, um, and, and I insisted that every person at that table has to do that. Because if everybody does it, nobody's doing it. It's totally impersonal. Because what we're doing is we're protecting the firm, we're protecting our investors, we're protecting the people who actually brought the deal, and we still do that to this day. And by having a non-emotional you know, approach to deals, it's actually quite fun to listen to the discussions. And it makes the people bringing the proposals infinitely better because they know they will be filleted. It just happens. And then they get a chance to be on the committee and do it to somebody else. Uh, but all of these rules, this is a very long answer, but I'm trying to share you know, sort of a lifetime of fixing up mistakes to have best practices. This is the way you end up with our performance in private equity and real estate, for example, is about double uh, the stock market over 30 years. So there are a lot of economists here. That's not supposed to happen, right? You can prove that won't happen, uh, but it happens. And we have virtually, uh, you know, in real estate, we've had almost no losses in 25 years of any time. And in private equity, we're up in the probably the mid-90s, you know, which is way different than liquid securities, which is about 54%. So you can do this. So that's that's a way long answer. 
so you're a danger asking me another one. Apparently. Well, we will. Um, and we'll actually stick with company culture a little bit longer, actually, because um, cultures change over time, or they can. And at one point, believe it or not, uh, Blackstone was a startup. Um, and we're interested in hearing uh, what you think is the difference between a smaller company where, where you know faces, you know names, and, and a larger company. And... Um, and how you retain the, um, the dynamism and, and the startup feel, if you will, uh, of, of a company as it grows larger? Well, I, I guess, I guess uh, there are a few ways you do that. One is complete fear of failure, uh, so, so you don't let that happen. Uh, and you, you have everybody around you, you know, fearful of uh, failing. That, that, that focuses the mind. The second thing is you, is you don't let your, your, your business get too big in terms of number of people, although it can be very big in terms of uh, uh, assets uh, uh, under management. Uh, third, uh, you have to run the business like it's a small business, and you have to make people feel like it's a small business. So the way we do that is, uh, uh, is through our meetings every Monday of each of our business lines. So, so if we have private equity, we have roughly uh, 225, 250 people in the group, we, we, we basically have a meeting that goes over everything we're doing. Uh, and it, it's centered in New York, but we have, you know, HD screens uh, from offices all over the world. And we go over what's happening in the world uh, because we have so many assets at a given point in time. We have somewhere between 80 and 100 companies we own with 500,000 to about 700,000 people working in the businesses. And, and this is, for those of you who aren't workers, this is a good size, uh, you know, operation uh, and uh, one of the largest in the world. And, and so we first get feeds as to what's, uh, what's going on. Everybody is in the room from, from first-year associate to the most senior partner. And we go over uh, after we, we get a sense of whether there's anything changing, good or bad, in the world. Uh, we, we, we then uh, look at whether anything's happening to one of our companies that's sort of, a, uh, you know, sort of an alert system. And then we start going over every transaction we're working. We start, uh, you know, in, in um, uh, Hong Kong, uh, and we go to Mumbai, and we go to London, and we go to New York. And by the time we then get a market briefing... Uh, on debt, on equity, uh, sort of an overall macro uh, thing, listen to our general counsel about, you know, what's going on from a regulatory or other proximate threat uh, uh, area, uh, and our public relations people and our shareholder relations people. Every person at, in that private equity group knows basically everything I know. So so if you do that every week, everybody has a sense. They're connected to the grid. We encourage everybody to speak up. And, and so we run it like it's a small firm. And everybody feels that way. And we do it in each one of our business lines. And, and so uh, if there's any other message that you want to, like, get through to people, uh, you know, every per periodically I do an insider training uh, kind of um, um, uh, forceful uh, will kill you 
if you do anything wrong. Uh, and the first time I did it, I, I got a lot of complaints from my partners. And they said, Steve, you're, you're going to ruin our reputation with our new people. And I, I said, I don't care. I said, I'm trying to protect them. They don't know what right behavior is and wrong behavior is. And I said, we have an obligation to tell them they're smart. They don't know. They, they, they can't tell the person they're living with. They can't tell their parents. They can't do You know, it's like stuff. And, and so we run the business in that sense in a professional but, you know, sort of paternalistic way uh, because we want no one to get in trouble. We want no one to fail. And we make it very clear. So you can do this. And, and you know, as long as you have people uh, at the top, and it's not just me, we have, like, groups of these people, right? That's we've a great firm. Uh, we all believe the same basic values and things, and we're in everybody's face. And then what happens is the next group tells the next group. And at the beginning, I hired everybody, uh, and, you know, most were good hires. There was occasion we had a change. Now, you know, it's like we've had a um, hundred, what do we have? We had 15,000 job applications for 84 positions. I remember when we could hire, hardly hire anybody. So I view all this as manna from heaven and, and a precious, precious resource to, to you know, sort of uh, develop and husband and protect every person uh, in the culture. I mean, everybody is important. So that's how you do it. If you think you're an executive, you're in big trouble, right? In finance, there are no executives. Those are people who watch what other people do, and when they screw it up, they either blame somebody or have their own business blown up. You, you have to, as a senior person, know exactly what's going on. You have to have taste. You, you have to have a sense of risk. You have to pass that on. And it's not about me. It's every one of our people at the top who run businesses on our management committee. Each one is running a business that's as big as pretty much anybody else's business. Our market cap is about the size of the next four companies combined. We raised as much money last year as the next four companies. Each one of our four verticals is about the same profitability level as any other firm. And so we have really amazing people, and we have fun together. I mean, who, who knows everything? Nobody, right? It's always changing. Everything's a cycle. And so you need really smart people discussing these things in a collegial way, and you do it with a broader group. So, so it's like continuing education, and it's fun. I mean, you don't, like, graduate, and it's over. We're, we're all still, like, going to school in a way. Uh, but it's the real world and real people uh, that we're dealing with. And when you make a mistake, you feel it. And, you know, when you're victorious, you know, it's on the front page of all these newspapers around the world, and then you go, uh-oh, what else is going wrong? Right? That's, that's the attitude you have to take in finance. Nobody's self-confident. Okay, for the next question, I want to ask you, Blackstone was built from the ground up by yourself and Mr. Peterson. You molded the company in your vision. Now, as the firm grew larger and more successful, it's inevitable for some of that responsibility to be shared. 
Your current president and chief operating officer, Tony James, was brought into the firm after several dinners with you one-on-one -on -one at your home in New York. I want to ask you how you determine whether someone is a right fit for your company at this level. You must have had a lot of choice. So what characteristics were you looking for at the time? Jeez, you, you had to be able to be good at everything I was bad at. Uh, and, and there was a lot of that. Uh, so so uh, uh, Tony uh, is, is the only other person on Wall Street who, who actually built uh, a firm like ours. His was called DLJ, of all things. Uh, and, you know, he, he basically was involved starting uh, the private equity business. Uh, he started uh, their, their, uh, their junk business. They had a little real estate business. Uh, and and so, so Tony uh, was used to making the same types of judgments, and he had an amazing record uh, as a, what we call them in, in finance, trigger pullers. Th these are not people with titles. These are the people who actually make the decisions. And Tony is great at making uh, investment decisions. He's also great at teaching people, uh, much better than I am, uh, uh, you know, how to analyze uh, uh, things. Uh, and and he, he's great at managing, and, and that's something that, you know, I'm not as, as good at doing um, as, as certainly he is. Uh, and, you know, I got to the end of my span of control, and, you know, I was like, an, I wasn't an impediment to the firm, but it was just like you couldn't, like, really step it out further, and you, you needed somebody else who could do that and, and you know, put in systems, and now we have 360-degree reviews for those who don't know what that is. That's when every person at the firm is rated by people senior to them, peers, and upwards of, uh, on an anonymous basis, and, and so you can tell, you know, sort of, who, who are your people who are doing really well and who's got a problem, and then you deal with the problems by helping them or asking them to get another job and, and help them. But, but you know, uh, actually they do much better that way. They can be successful. No, nobody's in good shape uh, sort of like, like not being able to do what you do. Uh, um, but but um, when, when you have like an intimate relationship with somebody uh, in an area where you can really make a mess if you make mistakes, that the, the way uh, you, you interview them is you spend time and, and you play what ifs. You, you talk about deals. What did you think of this? You know, because we all know what happened. What do you think was wrong with that? It's not our deal. It's not his deal. But it's like the world. How do you see the world? What are you thinking? And you're trying to assess whether somebody not only has other skills but on the important things um, has the same risk tolerance. Because if you have a, you know, like a close relationship with your number two person, because there is no, like, number one, number two. You, you start out number one, but, you know, geez, we do the same things that you can't have somebody working with you who really believes differently. They can look different, but if, if their attitude towards risk is different, then you're constantly going to be confusing to the organization. You're going to have friction with the person. You have to figure that out. Uh, and you, you also have to figure out how, do, how much do they like to grow? 
How do they handle people? How do they think about people? And if you do all that kind of stuff, and there's a great fit. I thought the fit with Tony was was going to be fantastic. And, you know, the only difference, I told him, is that sometimes he'd like to do some smaller things that would work. And, you know, I only like doing big things just because there's only so much time and effort you can do. I said, we might disagree on that. That's it. And so I guess now it's been 14 years and this is exactly the way it played out. And he's, he's a terrific guy, and I really respect him. And you have to respect people that you work with. Uh, they have to have something uh, pretty unique that you don't have because you can do your stuff. But to grow a business, you, you have to have people who have other, other skills on the margin, but there has to be a huge overlap on core principles. And... You know, we've done that not just with Tony, but with everybody who runs our uh, our major businesses. You, you should meet them. They're lovely people and very successful. Wonderful. Let's transition a little bit um, because, um, as we all know, you've been a great giver to philanthropic causes. And um, those have been as it looks to me, centered around education from the Yale Campus Center to the New York Public Library and now the uh, Schwarzman Scholars uh, Program. So would you say education, is that, has that been a particular priority for you? And what in general would you say matters to you when you decide which causes to support? Well, you know, in, in the U.S., uh, uh, my era, uh, a- a- education was the passport to success. You know, we... You know, we had a very large middle class uh, of which I was a member, and, and it was the educational opportunities which allowed you to, to um, you know, sort of better your situation. Um, and I was, like, really a lucky person. You know, I, I went to a good uh, public, which is the opposite of the U.K., you know, where that's private. But, you know, this is for the masses. Uh, and... Uh, public school, high school, I had 900 and some odd people in my class, very intimate. Uh, and uh, so that was a real proving ground uh, for life. Uh, they had great sports, and I, I loved uh, uh, winning uh, at sports, and um, that, was, that was terrific. And I got to go to Yale, uh, where they taught me how to think. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, then, then I went to Harvard Business School, uh, and, and I knew nothing about business other than I had my brothers shoveling snow for me, and I got 50% of the profits for, for bringing in the business. That was a good deal. Uh, it only lasted three years before they caught on to it, but uh, we had a renegotiation. Uh, but, but it's really education that, that gave me the opportunities. I, you know, I always felt you know I'd probably have a you know, a nice uh, large group of ladies' hair salons or something like that if I wasn't educated. Uh, and, you know, but I was lucky. I, I was. And I want to bring that to other people. And I, I sort of do this on a, on a multiple, you know, different levels. And, you know, my, my, my wife and I send uh, like a thousand uh, um, uh, kids to parochial school. Um, and, you know, these are people who, if left in the public schools, wouldn't be graduating, wouldn't be trained, wouldn't have a 
probability of a good life, and and virtually 100% of them graduate, and 98% go to college. So that's sort of like a wedge. Uh, but uh, we we do a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I was on the board of the New York Public Library, and that's a great melting pot. And, and in New York, always has been. And so, you know, well, you know, I gave them a lot of uh, a lot of money because they asked. I mean, I, I don't go around just like the tooth fairy or something. I mean, people come and they ask you, and you know, it's it's interesting or it's not. And now somebody asks me for something every week, uh, and um, you know, you need like an army of fly swatters, you know, to sort of deal with that. But uh, you know, the uh, you know, I went to Yale, and and when I went to Yale, I was I was like very lonely. I, I didn't know anybody. Maybe the people who go to LSC knew people before they got here. When I went to Yale, uh, I didn't know one undergraduate out of 4,000. I didn't know one person in the graduate school, which was 4,000. And I think they had like 3,000 faculty, and what the heck, I didn't know any of them either. Uh, and so it was really lonely. And I, 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 um, I ate three meals a day in this one giant place where, you know, it's sort of like, Nobody really would sit next to you, not because you're objectionable, because nobody knows you. And everybody else sort of knew somebody. There were a lot of, you know, 60% private school kids there, uh, U.S. private school, and they all went to school together. They knew each other. And, and it was, a, it was a sort of a tough, lonely uh, first year. So, so um, you know, the, the president of Yale uh, approached me, and, and he needed to have that building fixed up and I wanted to convert it into a student center to change you know sort of the way Yale worked because I was thinking about it for a long time and how do you have a different experience for the undergraduates it's more like Oxford and Cambridge where there's sort of pretty much no central place but individual colleges and the individual college system is great but if you had some place in the center where everybody could get together uh, and, you know, you had the normal stuff that you would have in, in that kind of setting. And then also turn it uh, into a cultural center where you had major performances. And, you know, I always loved, you know, like rock bands and discos and that kind of stuff and have that on, whether it's Friday night, and you just change the campus. And so he thought that was a good idea, so that's a project. And, and then um, I, I did this... Uh, Schwarzman Scholar thing, uh, which is really very, very uh, important to me, and I, I, I believe important to the wor- world. And we have two examples here of our first uh, uh, class, so I'm great to sort of be in their presence, uh, frankly. Uh, and, and what that's about is, is you know, I, I do a lot of stuff in our business around the world, and, you know, I get to see China a bunch, and they bought 9.9% of our stock in our initial public offering. And, and so I was introduced to the upper echelons of the Chinese government. Uh, and, and then they put me on television. Uh, and by the way, there, there is one television in China, CCTV. And if, they, uh, and if they put you on CCTV for an hour... Everybody knows who you are. And if they put you on the front page of their newspaper, people know who you are. So I had this happen to me, and, and so I, I, I have a, a different relationship with China than, you know, like a regular business person or whatever. Uh, and 
So I know a lot of the people there, and I, I've seen sort of how that works. And, and then I also live in the kind of world we're in, you know, the democracies and, and you know, sort of uh, what I would call relatively slow-growing uh, uh, economy, certainly compared to most of the emerging markets. And I've gotten to see the frustration uh, in the developed world. I've gotten to see the growth of populism. Uh, I've gotten to see a lot of uh, dysfunctional uh, behavior. And that kind of world where you have high unemployment, low growth, uh, makes people frustrated. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, they have to get angry at someone. And to me, it's just a matter of time before they stop getting angry at wealthy people or financial people or some other category, and they start getting angry at foreign countries. Uh, and, and, you know, that happens uh, in history. Uh, and and a, a, directing that to China would, I believe, from being around these people, lead to potentially really uh, bad outcomes. Uh, uh, and so I, I sort of looked at this and said, how do we sort of stop problems before they start? Because since, since the year 1500, uh, 12 out of the 15 times there's been a rising power like China uh, challenging an incumbent power, in this case the U.S., there have been wars between the challengers and the incumbents. And the idea of wars in the world we live in with the kind of weapons we have and, and links economically is sort of like, a, like an intolerable uh, outcome. And, and so I looked at that and I said, well, how do we get in the way of this? And if we could start a group, you know, sort of like the roads in a way, uh, with, with super capable people who could be future leaders, uh, whether it's in politics, business, uh, media, um, uh, academics, uh, send them, first select them, which we have, that was like fun, uh, and send them to China for a special program for a year where they meet the leaders of the country, uh, where they get a mentor, you know, sort of a famous person from China in their field of studies, they take them home and meet their families so you get a sense of what their culture would be, uh, give them some internships in their area of interest, uh, take them around the country, uh, and, and, and immerse them in, in, in Chinese culture for 11 months. I, it's called a year, but it's not like an academic year. Academic years, they're pretty casual. Uh, business years, we don't mess around, all right? You're on duty almost 24-7. It's what the Internet has done to all of us. Uh, you're always reachable. You're always on duty. So this is more the business-type philosophy. Uh, uh, and uh, if we give people a year uh, and they leave and they go back to their countries, uh, then they'll be infinitely wiser uh, about China, and they can interpret China uh, in their own countries as they get older. Uh, if China's making mistakes, they can go back the other way and, you know, try and get things modified and change. And we'll have 200 a year. So steady state, uh, that's about 10,000 people who are truly remarkable people. We, we had 3,000 applications our first year. 
3,054, but who's counting? Uh, and we accepted, I think it was like 116. So that's like 3.7%. So I don't know what the LSE number is, but 3.7 is sort of a bunch lower than Harvard and Stanford. And then we got a 96.7% acceptance. So I, I guess your yield is close to no, that. Not quite. Right. So, 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 <laughs> so, so this is like, you know, um, pretty much, if it's not the number one program in the world, number two or something like that. And it's just starting. And the people who we've attracted are like really extraordinary uh, people. I, I'm a solid six compared to these people. I mean, you know, it's like embarrassing. I couldn't get in. And I started the thing. I mean, you know, it just shows there's no justice. Uh, but, but, but uh, uh, you know, we're, we're opening uh, August 22nd. We're having our convocation on uh, the 9th and 10th of September. And we have this beautiful building that Bob Stern, who's the dean of architecture at Yale, uh, designed. So it's like one of these Chinese buildings that, you know, sort of has that kind of funny roof. And, uh, you know, brick that looks like it was done, you know, like 150 years ago. Uh, but the inside is a mix of uh, Western and, and uh, Chinese type feeling with, of course, you know, because it's new, world's best air conditioning, the world's best water filtration. We don't want to hurt these people, you know, when they go for a year. So it's a truly exciting thing. And uh, to start, it's going to be 45% Americans, 20% uh, uh, Chinese, and 35% from the rest of the world. Uh, and we probably will move the Americans back a little bit, so it's 40, 40, 20. But it's very exciting. We have, we have students from everywhere, even some places I never imagined we'd take people from. But they were so extraordinary. There's one, one person who was from some very, very small completely non-powerful country that, because of where it is, will never change. And our panel, who was interviewing this person, says, you must take this person. They, they, they are so extraordinary that it doesn't matter that they shouldn't be on the list. You know, they're just astonishing. And I said, but what's going to happen to this person? They said, well, it'll probably be the head of the UN. <laughs> So, so it's a, it's a very happy thing that we're doing, and you know we've raised over four hundred million dollars, which uh, you know for a program that didn't exist, uh, which is pretty good. For those of you who like to beg and grovel, I encourage you to try to sell a non-existent uh, program uh, in the academic world, uh, you know, for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I'm hitting one for seventeen which was like the first fund for Blackstone. Now, awful to be rejected 16 out of 17 times. Uh, now when I do my Blackstone stuff, it's pretty close to 100%, you know, when you show up because, you know, we have like a great record and people have to put their money someplace. But this has been a real um, interesting, I would call it midlife, you know, quasi-diversion. Uh, it's a passion like all other things, if you're in the startup business, any of you, you have to have a great vision, but you have to have unending execution. 
you cannot ever stop executing and making something consistent with your vision. It's like you never can stop. Because in the early stages of something, if you make it the way you want, that's the way it is. If you think you can delegate all these things, uh, it'll, it'll probably get done, but it won't be what you want. And if you have a firm vision of what you want, you have to, you have to go out and get it. So I'm completely ecstatic, as is my wife, that uh, the program will be opening in, uh, you know, like uh, two and a half, three months. So that's what I do educationally. I've always got something new I'm thinking about. This is what happens as you get older. If you have some resources, you got to do something with them if you have them. You don't have to, but you should. And doing something that's new and interesting, changing people's lives, improving people's lives, you know, looking out for the world in some way, it's really a good thing. And, you know, it doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. You, you can do this in your own way uh, with, without uh, the requirement that uh, I, I put on what I do. You've really worked tirelessly to create the Schwartzman Scholars Program, and you've been involved in, in its every step of the way, from the initial $100 million donation to the further fundraising of $350 million, the building of Schwartzman College, the selection of faculty, directors, the superstar mentors for the students, and even the selection process itself. So your donations aren't just gift-wrapped and mass-created. Yeah. What does it mean for you to personally be involved in the value creation? It's, it's, like, it's like anything that you do, that you take on, that you drag other people into. <laughs> you must make it successful. You must realize whatever vision you're articulating. It's, it's like a moral thing. You know, if you're, if you're asking other people to, to join you, you, you have to deliver whatever it takes. Uh, so... Why don't we turn this over to Craig? Why don't we turn this over to them? So let me thank Christian and Shan for great questions, and Steve for your being willing to be involved in the dialogue this far. And now we're going to open it up to questions from the floor. There are stewards in red shirts with microphones. The first gentleman in the back corner, please state your name uh, as you ask your question, and please keep it to a relatively short question. Okay, so thank you very much. Uh, it's been very interesting and insightful. Uh, my question to you, Steve. Nobody listens to me here. Please state your name. <laughs> my question to you is... Zair <laughs> Ali, uh, I work at Grant Thornton. I manage our financial services industries. So my question to you, Steve, is how do you deal with failure um, and what motivates you to succeed? Well, failure is a really interesting thing because um, that's where you learn. I know it sounds like BS, but that's where you learn. And, and every time you fail or something, something doesn't go the way you thought, it's not quite failure. It may result in, you know, sort of disappointment. But that's because you got something wrong. So what did you get wrong? Uh, and how did you miss what that was? And how do you um, uh, uh, plug that hole? analytically uh you know was it a hiring mistake was 
were you taking on more technology risk than you thought you were? Every, every situation has a bunch of variables that drive it. Uh, and if you're smart, you basically deconstruct that decision and when you're making it, and you take each of those variables and you look at the range of outcomes, and, and, and that becomes your expected uh, outcome. And you debate those. Now, every once in a while, you know, you get one of these five standard deviation things, and you go, how did I miss that? Why, why didn't I think about that? Should we be reforming the way we look at all risk? You know, in effect, should we be widening that? Um, and and um, you, you almost have to do the same thing when you're abnormally successful. Uh, why, why did we get that lucky? Uh, what was it that, that caused it? It wasn't our brilliance. It, we take credit for it. But uh, I, I had uh, one investment. It was, it was our guess, um, third investment. It was, a, it was a steel distribution center, and I gave it a go, and... We had one partner who brought the deal who thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. If you believe sliced bread is good, now nobody does. But nonetheless, uh, and, and somebody else said, this looks like an impending bankruptcy, and I decided it. I went with the person who brought the deal. Guess what? Six months later, we couldn't pay our interest. So, so what I learned was, was that simply relying on me as a great man was like bad shot. Right, too much risk, too much idiosyncratic risk, and and I was untrained anyhow. I was learning the business. I was an M and A person. Now I was committing capital. So so we we you know I came up with this system of of everybody debating written stuff days ahead, a second trip back with the unanswered questions everything in writing so the team can't fool the other people who are sitting there because they know more and talk faster. You know, all the ways you can, you know, like be misled uh, by smart people because almost everybody in finance is smart and they, you know, they wear nice clothing and, you know, they're, they're plausible, right? But you can't let that control. And, and, and so that was one way we changed the whole firm. And I, I have that tombstone. In the old days, they gave you lucite things with the name of the companies with you bought them or sold them or something. And, and so this one I did as a tombstone. I had it shaped just like a tombstone. And I, I, I printed my own, like, death thing, you know, inside. I, I did it in black with white letters, and I, I kept it on my shelf all the time as a reminder that smart people can do really dumb things. And um, so, so forcing an organization, which, by the way, organizations don't like looking at their failures. It's like some crazy relative they keep up in the attic or something. But he's really not there. Just leave some food. Uh, you know, don't bring him out and meet anybody. Uh, uh, you know, you have to force that as a leader. You have to make people look at mistakes, because that's where the real learning is. And in terms of my own motivations, I mean, I don't know. I've always been like this, so I, I guess I haven't matured. But, um, you know, I still have the same drive and, you know, sort of desire uh, for everyone around us to be uh, 
you know, successful or investors, uh, particularly the people at the firm, individuals. I'd like everyone to be successful if they have the capability. Uh, nobody thrown off the boat just for sport. Uh, you know, ridiculous uh, concept. So that's what I believe in. Okay. A lot of questions. A woman in white in about the third row here. Hi, my name is Alexandra. I'm a second-year management student at the LSE. Um, you've followed quite an unconventional path. Oh, sorry. You've followed quite an unconventional path from your education to your job. Um, and obviously, we're different times. Now, I think if I speak for most, if I say the job environment is quite competitive with applying for jobs and that kind of stuff. Um, most people have been to university. They tick quite all the boxes as it's available on the company's website. And I was wondering what your advice would be in how to tackle such a problem and stand out of such a large crowd of people who have followed all the same steps. Yeah, question is, how, how do you stand out uh, as somebody in today's, uh, you know, sort of competitive job market? Is that the basic uh, question? Um, I, I think it's hard um, in terms of getting in a door. Once you're in a door, I can tell you what to do. Um, and, um, uh, you know, to get in a door, um, it's, it's helpful to beat on it, you know, like bang, 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 I'm here. And, you know, you can do that through regular system, regular way. You can do it if you know somebody at the firm, any firm, you know, sort of an internal person starts tossing your resume around. It's, it's better than just, a, you know, like a post office box. Uh, you know, if, if, if your uh, teachers know people at any organization and if somebody will really uh, speak up for you, um, you know, when you get a call from somebody or an email saying, this is one of the best uh, students I've ever had from somebody who's, you know, sort of a responsible person, no matter where it is in your life, actually. It doesn't have to be a professor. That's something where, you know, there's a curiosity that you have, whereas they said, geez, this person is either really gifted or they've managed to, like, convince somebody of something and get them out on the line and, you know, if it's... And, and so... That's another way uh, in the system. Um, so, so I can't be comprehensive of every way to, like, uh, you know, penetrate uh, a system. What I can say is, is, is when you get, you know, um, in front of people, which, you know, that, that's part of the thing, is really just sort of be yourself. I interview bunches of people, and I always have fun. And uh, if somebody's, like, sitting there, like, you know, nervous and, and, you know, sort of, like, tied up in knots or so tense, you say, geez, could I, I spend, like, ten minutes with this person without, like, catching this disease? Uh, or, you know, you're, you're just a person. And you're going to be working with people. All they want to know is how smart are you, how focused are you, how flexible are you uh, uh, cognitively, uh, emotionally? Uh, you know, what kind of energy level uh, do you have? What kind of focus do you have? Uh, you know, I don't know how to interview anybody, but I always have fun. Uh, and I look at their resume, and, you know, there's always stuff on it. 
and you pick something that is like interesting or you know uh, and you talk about that or you talk about something I do that I just did. I just, I'm always just doing something. I walk into a room and I, I haven't been sitting there contemplating your interview. And, you know, I'll bring up something that I'm working on that is confidential, but I don't give you the confidential part just because I'm excited about it. And if you sit there like, you know, like a dead fish going, well, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> you know, that's like the wrong answer, right? You're supposed to be excited too. You don't have to know anything. But I'm, I'm just like sharing. And if you don't want to play, then that's like not a good thing. Because it's, I'm not going to bring up something that's boring, right? Oh, I just had this boring phone call. I'm, I'm bringing up something that's like happening on the world stage. And if that doesn't catch your fancy, then you should be doing something, but probably not with me. Uh, right? So, you know, what I find is when I interview somebody, the first thing I do is I look in their eyes. And that sort of gives away 80% of a person. And if they're alert, if they're comfortable, if they're, you can see the intelligence, you can see their comfort levels. And, and, you know, that's what you focus on if you're somebody like me. And all you have to do is be yourself. And you'll get read right. And you'll either be right for the situation or you won't. And you'll do something else and that'll be fine. You know, not everything is fine for everyone. Right? It's, so, so that's the advice I would give you. Great. Let's go upstairs. The woman on the aisle just next to you there. Yeah. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm Margarita Skarko. I work in strategic risk management at Barclays Investment Bank. Um, You've set up this fantastic program for future leaders. My question is around your thoughts on diversity, and in particular gender diversity, when it comes to leadership. Gender diversity and other diversity, is it important in leadership? Uh, we, we have, um, well, let, let me just do something historically. When I, when I was in, started in finance, there were almost no women in finance. It was like pretty odd because I went to a public high school where, you know, we had an equal number of men and women. Uh, and that's changed uh, radically. Um, when I went to Harvard Business School, we had three women in a section of 77 students and every section was the same. Three women, total of 77 people. I, it was just a case on Blackstone uh, that I it just was published um, about four weeks ago, I was up at Harvard Business School. I think uh, they're like 45% women now. Uh, and they're uh, certainly the equals uh, of any of the other people uh, in the class, who I guess by definition have to be men, right? Uh, so, so uh, you know, uh, I, I think, at least in the world I inhabit, uh, that, um, that, that, that there's not much of a gender issue in, in a historical uh, uh, sense. And um, I think there are enormous opportunities uh, available for people, whether they're women or they're men, uh, you know, talent rules. And what we did in uh, the Schwarzman Scholars, we had a debate about 
all the academics wanted us to sort of do Noah's Ark, you know, two of everything. You know, it's like, and I'm in the talent business, and I told them, I said, you know, I'm not in the, in the, in the bias business. I'm in the talent business. That's how we run our business, and let's just take the best people and not force everybody into things. We, we have about 35% women. I mean, came out pretty well, I think, for like a first class. And, and some of the people we have are astonishing, astonishing. I was just out at Stanford, and one of our Schwarzman scholars is a young woman uh, who um, um, basically, uh, well, she invented uh, a, a solar oven, which was in some contest of the 10 best, invest, uh, 10 best inventions that will impact the world of 2015. I mean, and it's like unending talented people. So I, I sort of look at this, and, and um, you know, society's changed enormously. At your age, uh, you, you may not be able to see the transition that, that occurred, but, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm still around, and this was a completely unfair uh, system uh, in the early 1970s, and I think Harvard Business School shows that this is like a radical change. Okay, let's go. The gentleman here with the red hair. Hi, uh, thanks, uh, George. I'm an economics student here. Um, from a financial perspective, do you think Donald Trump will make um, America great again? Will Donald Trump make him have gray hair, and how fast? Well, Don, <laughs> Don, Donald make you, may make you already have the same color hair. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to comment on U.S. presidential elections. This is a, a very uh, uh, unusual uh, uh, time in, in, in the States. And it's, it's triggered uh, a lot by the fact that there hasn't been a sufficient uh, recovery uh, for individuals since uh, the financial crisis. So the Fed did a, a study and found that 47% of the people don't have uh, more than $400 uh, of cash uh, to handle an emergency uh, without selling something uh, or borrowing some money from somebody. So if you have half of a country almost that can't write a $400 check, uh, you're going to have a type of politics that develops with a lot of frustrated, uh, uh, angry, uh, scared people who are one paycheck away from something terrible happening to them if they have a medical crisis, uh, need to pay co-pays or first loss or whatever. And, and that's fashioned um, uh, the, the political environment that you see today, which is, which, you know, you can look at it from a foreign country to the U.S. and think it's very strange. If you look at it in the U.S., you think it's equally strange. So beyond that, I, 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 I'm, I'm not in the hair coloring business uh, or, or the hair mousse business. Uh, so I, I, I can't tell you whether... 
Donald will turn you gray. You look like you're pretty young. Your, your hair will probably stay the same color. Okay, we've got that here. <laughs> I'm still processing this one. Let's go to the back row. Hello, thank you. My name is Martin, and I'm an economics undergrad here. Um, I would like to know um, what, in your opinion, um, are the right decisions uh, one has to make once we do have a foot in the industry that will affect whether uh, one becomes, uh, if you will, a hardened corporate worker as opposed to a successful financer. Thank you. All right. How do you determine whether you're going to become a hardened corporate worker or a successful financier? Jeez. I don't think being hardened is a good idea. Uh, you know, uh, you should have, uh, you know, sort of fun and, and commitment to what you do. And, and life shouldn't be drudgery. The way it works is if, if you thought you were like a hardened, limited, you know, unimaginative person, and that's not who you are, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll end up quitting that job uh, or you'll fail in it because to be successful in life, and there's you know, some people a little older, I see some gray hair up towards the front, but you know, up, in the, up in the balcony, I don't see a lot of gray hair. Uh, that you, you're, you're only successful typically in things that you're really adapted for, things you love, things that are after you get through the apprentice phase of what you're doing, pretty effortless. Uh, and, and that kind of, you know, sort of creativity is where you should be dedicating your efforts because you'll be much better. And people have different gifts. If, if you like selling things, it's sort of fun. Uh, and you can sell different kinds of things, but you have to believe in what you're selling. This isn't like a bad game. It's not like a, it's not like a play, uh, you know, where there are evil people abounding. Uh, you know, it's your life. You have, to, um, you, you have to make it congruent with your values. Uh, and, and so you can't be a victim if you find yourself with a mistake. And, and young people make mistakes. Uh, when you're older, you make different kinds of mistakes. But, you know, you, you, you know when you're young, if you've never worked or... You've only worked once. The chance that you get it right the first time, you know, uh, is 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 not the highest probability. Uh, so so you have to be prepared to change if you're not doing something that really um, makes you proud and jazzes you up and pushes you uh, to grow. Uh, and if you don't get that, you're you're in the wrong place. I, I would also say that that doesn't necessarily happen the first week you're at a job. Uh, there is a learning curve. You have to give things enough time to learn the basics. In, in finance, for example, there's, it's an apprentice business. Somebody teaches you, and the first year or two, I mean, uh, I almost quit. It was only my wife that said, geez, Steve, there are all these smart people who do this. It can't be that terrible. And in 1972 and three it was, we had a recession and nobody did anything. And, you know, there were no IPOs. There, were, there was nothing. We sat in our desks and did spreadsheets. It was mind-numbing. And, you know, then things changed a bit. But you have to give it enough 
But don't stick with something you hate because it's prestigious. Uh, you'll find you'll be mediocre by the end of it. You only do things you love that really just, it's like being on a great basketball team. You know, you pay them more, you pay them less. Doesn't matter if they love shooting the ball and it goes in and you're on a championship team. It's a great feeling. You want to have that kind of feeling. You don't want to just go to work. I mean, there's only one of you and you disappear after a while. You were all time limited. So you have to maximize this. Steve, I'm going to cheat and ask you a question that's sort of a follow-up on that. Since you're a sports fan and you've followed, among other things, the trend to try to quantify risk and performance in a lot of ways. It's affected a lot of sports. Our alumnus, Michael Lewis, has written about this and all. So the, the various um, statistics. And finance has its own sort of technical side. So a lot of students will master technical skills. They will get in the door by having graduated at the top of their class with very technical skills. How far can you go with quantifying risk with a purely technical approach? Or are some other things really crucial? Yeah, geez, you know, there's nothing like judgment. And judgment doesn't come from technical skills. That's like a setup, right? And it's useful, but there's a, there's a feel to things. You know, it's sort of like, what's, what's a dangerous neighborhood? You know, would you walk down a dangerous neighborhood, or wouldn't you, right? If you're going to do it, you better know you are doing it. Uh, and I, I find that, you know, part of the issue with, you know, sort of people who've been, you know, sort of studying finance since they were 14 and doing spreadsheets, you know, uh, over summer vacation, that's, that's easy to get hired because you're, you know, sort of a useful extension of a, you know, of some kind of, you know, like machine. But that doesn't qualify you to have great judgment. There are some people, and it's really wonderful, you, you see it in politics, some people and I won't say who they are, are just miserable. I mean, you know, they get countries into trouble. They make a mess for people. They always think they're right, by the way. Uh, but, but they don't have judgment. There, there are other, you know, people who just, they have the sense of where to be. There was a hockey player named uh, uh, Wayne Gretzky, who, uh, whose daughter was in my stepdaughter's class at, um, you know, sort of... Uh, elementary school and, and, and then, you know, sort of junior high school. And uh, Wayne Gretzky wasn't too much bigger than me. Uh, and uh, he played defense. So that's the part near his own goal. And he set the uh, National Hockey League record for offense. How is this possible, right? He plays defense. He's the highest scoring player in hockey history. And he's not big. He's not big. So they asked him, Wayne, how do you do that? And he said, I, I just skate to where the puck's going to be. He, he had this, like, feeling for everything. You could see it all at once. I have people at Blackstone who have this. Uh, and... Uh, a lot of us have this, 
And it's sort of like a refined skill that, you know, you either have or you don't. You, you need basics. I, I was saying when we walked over, and I don't mean this to cast any aspersions about London School of Economics, but I, I've never had an economics course. Um, and I'm not good at math. My wife thinks I'm an embarrassment. I sort of stopped in the third grade. You know, add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and then move that decimal point, right? Uh, and uh, I, I, I've survived by not having uh, particularly good technical skills. I've survived by seeing where the puck's going to be and understanding what doesn't feel right and seeing something that is starting to happen that other people don't see. And, you know, that's, that's like a, it's a certain kind of skill. And, you know, um, you, you don't have to be that technical at the end of the day to know the difference between right and wrong. Go and don't go, right? There's people overwhelmed with data. And there's always so much data and so many computations. These memos are so long. And everybody's all twitched about them. And basically what you're looking for are, you know, the one or two or max three variables that drive something. And you just think about it and how does it feel? And, you know, it's it's not computational. You know, is this going to happen or is it not going to happen? What's reasonable? And, And then you have to, like, push a button and not have analysis paralysis. That's another specialty of of super smart people. You know, they, they often just keep saying, well, that's a new piece of information. I've got to recalibrate. Well, if it's a new piece of information in the insignificant area, why, why mention it other than it, it exists? So that's, uh, that, that's, that's how I look at, at that. It's good to have technical skills, but it's not the game. So let's go to the man in the back row who is unaccountably wearing a Harvard jacket, but I hope he wears an LSE jacket when he's at Harvard. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, uh, my name is Okando Lewis Gale, and as the branded gear says, I am at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, uh, Sean and, and Calhoun, thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, and, and Stephen, I should say thank you. So I'd like to personally thank you for raising the brand equity of our university. <laughs> thank you so very much. But I am. Um, I'm very interested in, uh, I'm the founder of a network uh, of African entrepreneurs called Harambe, and we're very much um, hoping to be sort of the Schwarzman scholars of Africa over the next few years. But uh, I'm in this interesting uh, transition from being founder to CEO, and I had dinner with uh, Charles Kahn on Friday at uh, the Rhodes Scholars, uh, who was giving me some advice. And But you were in a particular position where you were both founder of the group, but also CEO, and it seems like you, they're, they're two different beasts, aren't they? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what advice and how you can actually transition. What, the, the difference between being a founder and a CEO? Yeah, and how do you, and how going do you, from a CEO founder to just, you know, like an old, tired, used-up founder? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that, how do you transition into it? It seems that there are different skill sets that are required, and you seem to have mastered both of them. Well, you know, um, Sometimes in a classic model, you have the sort of half-wacky entrepreneur who goes out and takes enormous risk and, you know, somehow survives it and can't handle people. He can't manage anything or she can't. And uh, 
they have to be rescued by the CEO who takes all of their deficiencies, goes and marginalizes them, and uh, leads uh, on a path to glory. That, that, that's a model, right? Uh, and uh, if, if, if the CEO was going to, like, blow up the firm, I mean, the founder was going to blow up the firm, then that would be the appropriate thing. But usually it doesn't quite work that way. And, you know, if you look in the, the tech world with the huge successes of, of a lot of the, you know, whether they're the Googles or, you know, sort of Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or, you know, what was Steve Jobs, you know, at that point. Um, you, you can uh, bridge that as a founder, but you have to supplement what you're doing. As, as, as I described, uh, you know, no one has, no one uh, is born a CEO. There is no, you know, if you go to one of those great genome centers, not one of those trains, you know, has CEO on a gene, Right. It's learned behavior for everybody. They come aggressive. They come quiet. They come short, tall. They come assertive and collaborative. So many different styles of being a CEO. But what's, what's important is for a founder to recognize what they're good at, what they're not as good at, and what an organization needs and, and then you have to have basically no ego. You just you're you're doing this to create the organization and and develop things and, and create something unique. If if you need other people with other skills, you, you shouldn't even vaguely hesitate. I've seen a lot of people who've really ruined organizations by believing they, they can do everything and they're all wise and we don't believe that. I don't believe that. You know, I wasn't first in my class at uh, any school or second or third. Okay, this is taking a dangerous turn. We're not going to go down that list. Let's go to the woman in the back in the pink sweater. Thank you. Um, I'm Celine. I'm a student of Professor Ulf Axelson. And um, as we were talking about judgment, I want to ask about, like more people are talking about uh, responsible investment and impact investment as well, especially in Europe and uh, North America. So my question is, as a leader in the private equity industry, what role do you think like Blackstone can play in this area? Thank well, you. Well, the, the whole area of, of uh, impact investing and and you know, usually using money for social progress and so forth is 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 a good thing. Uh, I think it's been uh, you know pretty successful, uh, and certainly microfinance is amazing in terms of the um, results uh, that that have been achieved and the impact in developing areas uh, of the world. Uh, you know, for for, for us. Uh, you know, we operate at huge uh, scale. I mean, we have $344 billion uh, right now, and uh, we're continuing to grow. Uh, and these are very small, you know, types of endeavors, typically. And, and so it's not a perfect fit for us. 
uh, as a firm. But, but it is uh, a good thing, I believe, to be doing. Okay. Steve's told us we need to be flexible and have judgment, but it's a firm rule at the LSE that we have to end these events at 8 o'clock. And part of the CEO world that Steve inhabits means he has to have breakfast tomorrow morning in Saudi Arabia and has to go catch a plane. So you need stamina to do this, as well as some other skills. Please join me in thanking Steve Schwartzman for always...